I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning and return to our study of the book of Romans. We are beginning to focus our attention on chapter 2. And I want us to return there again this morning, so if you have your Bibles, open them if you will. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 16. God says to us through the Apostle Paul, Therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. For those who seek perseverance, or who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they know, or then in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Paul begins this section of his letter to the Christians in Rome with four very penetrating words. We find them in verse 1, and the words are this, You are without excuse. None of us here this morning truly like to hear words like that, especially if they are aimed in our direction. You are without excuse. In fact, when these kinds of words are leveled at us, Our usual response is simply to doubt the truth of them. We will say to others, that can't be true. We will say to others all kinds of reasonings for why we did what we did and the reasonings behind the actions which we took place, and yet before God, you are without excuse. Why? Because these are God's words. These are not the words of men. These are God's words, and that makes these words applicable to all of humanity. Sometimes we say a whole lot of things about the Word of God that we enjoy, and this is one of the things that we might say we don't enjoy. The fact that His words have a sharp point on them And they get down to what the Word of God says, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. These words are ever more clear to us that they refer to all men, especially when you read verse 12. For all who have sinned, I'm sorry, but raise your hand if you're not within that group. All of us are there, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law 
will be judged, in fact, by the law. There is a distinction that the Apostle Paul is bringing about here in chapter 2. There are two groups of people that are being addressed. All of humanity fits within these two groups. There are those who have been given the privilege to have the law of God in written form, and there are those who are not so privileged. In the Apostle Paul's day, when he was writing the book of Romans, there was this difference, or he is referring to, in many ways, to the difference between the Jew and the Gentile, or even the Jew and the Gentile who was a proselyte Jew, so a a real Jew by heritage, and even those who came over to Judaism by their own Uh, joining with that group. We might call this the religious group. The people of the world that are religious people. They are the ones who had the law of God. In Paul's time, this was the Jews. They had the written word of God. They were the ones who were privileged to be under the constant exposure of what God said through His written Word. They had the the written knowledge of what God required of them in relationship to Him. They were the ones who had God's written standard before them every day. In our day, jump forward to our modern time, if you will. You can equate this with some ways with the religious world as a whole. Particularly those in the evangelical world who who actually read the Scriptures, who who take the Scriptures to themselves, who, who most, at least in our country, when it comes to evangelicalism, have at least one Bible in their house. Not all religions accept what the Bible says as a rule of life, but most, even of false religions, have a knowledge of the Bible in our day, through the proliferation of information, and we can get it at breakneck speed now just on the phone in your hand, most people have a knowledge at least of the content of the Bible. So that's one group that Paul is speaking to, but there is another group that Paul is talking about. And that group is made up of those who have not received by way of privilege the law of God. Maybe they've never known the Bible. Maybe they've never known the written word. We think about that in our own evangelicalism. We say, well, maybe there's an island somewhere, some remote place within the jungles of of the world in which someone doesn't have the written word of God. These are those who are ignorant of the written standard of God. But, as we have learned in our study already in chapter 1, they are indeed a law unto themselves as to the morality of life, as to the standard of right and wrong before a holy God, before one in which they must have a relationship with. Why? Because God Himself has shown to them His standard. You remember what it said in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Let me just remind us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is an all-encompassing group, all of humanity, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Why? Because God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what He has been made, so that they are without excuse. In comparison to the people of Paul's day, these were the unreligious nations that surrounded the religious Jews. These were the people who were non-Jews. Those who had not in any kind of way converted in some way to Judaism. These were the secular people. These were the irreligious people. In our day, we can simply think of it as the world at large. This is the world without God. The non-religious world. The unchurched, if you will. 
These are the ones which Paul has described in great detail in the chapter 1. Those who do not have the law of God in some form. He says in verse 29, they are filled with all, notice, they are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. They are insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. They are disobedient to their parents. They are without understanding. They are untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And even though they know the ordinance of God that those who practice things are worthy of death, not only do they do that, but they also give hearty approval to others who practice the very same things. It's a sad picture of the non-religious world. The religious world often reads those words of chapter 1, and oftentimes we can read them with a heart that says, Yes, that's exactly right. The unreligious needs to get their comeuppance from God. We give hearty agreement and a hearty assessment to that. And then you come to chapter 2, and Paul begins with those four words. These are inseparable words by way of implication for all of us. All of a sudden, the table of judgment is turned in our direction. The very things that the religious see going on in the world, the very things of verse 29 through 32, the very things that you and I as religious people are in agreement with and to be against, they now become the very things that indict us. And it is this turning of the tables that exposes the true heart of every man. It's the turning of these tables that exposes self-righteousness in our day reading this and studying this this week and I I could not help but think about what took place in the life of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We have to go there for a moment. Go back to the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Surely you have yourself in your own time in the Word of God read the story And I just want us to spend a moment here to see the heart of self-righteousness in the religious. To see the heart of religious self-righteousness in play. To see the heart of a moralist who's trying in some way to say before God, I'm okay with God, and in by doing that, trying to keep the law for all intents and purposes, looking righteous, but in reality is without excuse before God. If you remember the story well, what took place in David's life, David had always been God's choice to be the king of Israel. And because David loved God and had a heart for God, God blessed his endeavors as the king of Israel. He was that shepherd boy that slew Goliath with just a stone from the river. Much like the nation of Israel before David, they were God's choice. And among all of the nations of the world, they, they were the one through whom the Messiah would come. They were special in God's eyes, not because in and of themselves they were special, but simply because God had placed His covenant love upon them. They had a special place, a highly privileged place before God. And if they would follow after God, if they would trust Him alone, then God would bless them. But they did not do that. David is the same way. David did likewise. David began to follow after the lusts of his own desires. In his heart, he did what was evil in the sight of God. 
And so in the outworking of his own wicked heart, he, he took something that was not his. He, he went after something that he wanted to have advantage for, something that was not given to him by God for any reason. Then, through an elaborate plan of deception, he attempts to cover up his sin. He attempts to appear righteous before the people. And so God sends a man named Nathan to King David. Nathan comes to the king and he begins to relay to him a story. We're not sure whether the story is true or not, but it certainly is being used by Nathan as an illustration of what David had done. The story goes this way, beginning in chapter 12 and verse 1. There were two men in one city, one rich, another poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children he would eat the bread drink the cup lie with his lion it would lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him now a traveler had come to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him so nathan relays this story to david like the moralists of our day, like the self-righteous of our day, like the typical Jew of Paul's day, David responds to the story. Notice verses 5 and 6. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. David, like the religious moralist, like the Pharisee, like even Paul at one point in his life, gives hearty approval. I cannot believe that someone would be like that, David said. I can't believe this person would do that. I can't believe what they did for as long as God lives. You know, how long is God going to live? Forever. For as long as God is around. So forever they must pay. They must pay until God is no longer on the scene. They must pay deeply. In fact, they must pay fourfold. That's what the law required. The law required if someone killed a bull or somebody's lamb or something like that, they would pay four or five times the amount in order to be right. We ask ourselves when we read things like that, is David right in his assessment? Is David looking at it and saying, are you right about this alleged person in their act of wickedness? Are they accountable to God on that level? And the answer to that question is, absolutely. The person who has done this should suffer the consequences before God in whatever way God would have it. And then comes those four words. Verse 7. You are the man. The table had been turned. The truth is now exposed. David, you are without excuse. You are clearly guilty before a holy God. Now I want us to take that understanding and go back to Romans chapter 2. Because this is the same implicational truth that Paul is uncovering to the self-righteous of his day. Oh, listen, don't think that you can hide yourself. Don't think you're high before God. Don't think too highly of your own self before God. You are without excuse. 
one thing to give a hearty approval concerning the depravity and debauchery of the world. To say, yes, they deserve to get everything that's coming to them until God goes off the scene, which will never happen. But don't be too quick to remove yourself from that equation. Why? Because every person is without excuse before God. What is done outwardly, what is done by way of action, activity, no matter how good it looks, has no bearing upon your guilt before God if your heart is still spiritually dead. You can do all kinds of religious activities, but if your heart is dead, it matters not. This is what Paul proclaims in verse 11 of this very chapter. There is no partiality with God. And so upon hearing those words, upon hearing what Paul says to the people, and these are saints to whom he is writing, we have to all sit up and we have to take a personal inventory. We have to look at our life. God does not have favorites when it comes to the spiritual life. Each and every person is on equal ground before the true and living God. verdict before Jesus Christ comes into the picture the verdict is this about all men we are all guilty before God guilty whether it's the rank pagan who has never heard the truth of God or whether it is those who have been in the church all their life those who live religiously according to the written words of God. If their heart has not been made new by God, then the result will be the same. Eternal separation from God for as long as God lives. This is Paul's whole point in chapter 2. He's taking the self-righteous moralist of his day and saying the same words as Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You are just as guilty before God as the rank pagan in chapter 1 is guilty before God. Now, just by way of outline for us, We are really just trying to answer the question as to why does God judge? Why does God judge? And we're answering that question so that we might see that this is indeed the justice of God that nobody actually wants. We want justice in the world. We talk about it a lot. We have justice systems in order to make things right between men. And we talk about justice, and yet we see here this is the justice nobody wants. It's clear why God is right to judge the rank pagan. Clear that all those who are irreligious have turned their backs on God. They have plunged themselves further into the cesspool of every kind of act of sinning. But it's also as clear why God is right to judge the self righteous religious person. And so I want to begin our time this morning to unfold for us four reasons why. Those who are self-righteous and answer the question this way, why should God allow you to enter into his kingdom? And some people answer like this, well, I go to church, I've been baptized, I I, I pray, and I've prayed a prayer of, of, of belief. In fact, I haven't done any real sin. I haven't, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't uh, been someone who has, has just taken advantage in every kind of way of others. I give generously to charities. I'm a good person. I want to give us four reasons why even they are guilty before God. Why the self-righteous is guilty before God. Reason number one is this. Flagrant hypocrisy. 
flagrant hypocrisy. This is reason number one for why the self-righteous are guilty before God. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2 clearly shows us this. You are without excuse. Who, every man who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. This is Paul's first indictment. This is his first wake-up call to those who are self-righteous. Those who would say, well, this is me. Why should God allow me to be in his presence? Because I am such a righteous person. Paul simply holds up a mirror and lets them see their own hypocrisy. God desires that all men see who they really are. Remember I said earlier in chapter 1 that unless someone comes to the point where they see themselves as God sees them, they'll never want to be saved because they don't need a Savior. They're already okay. God just wants people to see themselves as He sees them. The word hypocrisy isn't written in these verses, but it's definitely described, isn't it? Hypocrisy is just another word for something that appears one way and yet is really different behind the scene. Anytime I hear the word hypocrisy, I think of the the old Western movies, right, where you have the Western town. I used to live in California, and in California they did a lot of the filming of those kind of movies, and typically the set on those Westerns was all a facade. It, It was just the front of the building. Behind it was nothing. That's hypocrisy. Paul's day is described those who were were in the theater behind a mask. The theater players would hold a mask in front of their safe. They They were play actors. So what you saw on the outside wasn't really the person who was behind the mask. They were people who were putting on an act in front of others. This is the self righteous. This is the essence of the hypocrite. This is who Paul is describing here in verses 1 through 3. And the hypocrisy that is here, the flagrant hypocrisy, is seen first through their personal standard by which they judge. Notice in verse 1 again, You who pass judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Paul says in essence, listen, look. Your standard for judgment is a faulty standard. It is a self-approving standard. Paul isn't addressing necessarily what is fully used as their judgment because even the right standard can be used as a self-approving standard. If it only points at others and it doesn't, uncover yourself, then it's self-righteousness. It's hypocritical. Why? Because God's standard is for all men. So you can sit and use the Bible and you can use it as a self-approving standard by your own judgment, but God's standard, when when we truly see it for what it is, clearly exposes us. But to the self-righteous, it only applies to others. This was the very indictment that was leveled by Jesus Christ at the Pharisees. In fact, I want us to turn there because this is a... Go to Matthew chapter 23 for a moment. I wasn't sure this morning if I was going to read this, but I think it's necessary for us to hear this. Because these are both pointed and frightening words. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, of course, approaching the end of his ministry, at least in that gospel as Matthew has recorded it. Many people have followed him. He's challenged with the Pharisees numerous times. In verse chapter 23 it says, And he spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. And here's what he said. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do it and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and they do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay on 
men sh- lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. That's the place where they would keep little prayer paper. And they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not be call anyone on earth your father, in light of the Catholic Church. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, who is in he-, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Why? Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel about on the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the weightier provisions of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? For behold, I'm sending you the prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you're going to kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this. Christ was such a nice preacher. Wow. What an indictment against self-righteousness. What an indictment against hypocrisy. That, beloved, is exactly what 
Paul means when he says in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Romans, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. You are without excuse before God when He judges because your flagrant hypocrisy reveals the condition of your heart. What is behind the mask has been shown clearly. God has ripped the mask off and it is seen first of all through your application of the standard which only points out and never points in. second way of flagrant hypocrisy is seen in these verses is just simply through self-imposed ignorance. You have a standard that only points out. That's one way your selfish hypocrisy is seen in in life at times. But here's the second, self-imposed ignorance. Notice verses 2 and 3. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is self-imposed ignorance. And I want us all to understand, as Paul writes this, that Paul includes himself. You notice the change in the pronoun in verse 2. We know this. We know. We all know. All men know. But especially those who are within the privilege who have the Word of God, we know. What God requires. Paul was a Jew. He was at one time a religious leader in his day in Judaism before Christ. He he knew the law. In fact, he recounts that to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, and he says this, just listen, beginning in verse 4, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I far more. You know, if you want to stand up and, and compare resumes as to religious acumen, as to titles behind the name, as to what I did when I was a religious person here, nobody has more confidence in those things than I do. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Not only was I a Jew, I was of the tribe within Judaism. When it came to the law, I was a Pharisee. When it came to zeal within the law, I was a persecutor of the church. Those who stepped outside of Judaism, I persecuted them, even though they tried to say they were right. As to the righteousness which is in the law, nobody could point a finger at me. I was blameless. You held my life up against the law. There was nobody like me. And so Paul says, look, I was filled with self-righteous hypocrisy. There was a time when I lived according to the works of the flesh. There was a time when I carried my life by way of the law, and if I did it, I believed and convinced in my own heart that I was right before God. And yet right here in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, We all know that what was stated about sinful man in chapter 1, we know all that's wrong before God. We know that. We know that instinctively because God placed it there. And every Jew knew that by way of written law. Every religious person knows that by way of religious law because we are all trained in the law of God. If you live in any kind of way in the outworking of your life in, in big ways and small ways like what is listed in chapter 1, God's judgment is just. So then, chapter 2, verse 3, why do you then claim ignorance to that consequence? Do you suppose that somehow that judgment won't fall on you for doing the very same things? Do you think that God will somehow just overlook you 
not happen culturally. In fact, you are all the more culpable before God. Why? Because you have the privilege of having the actual written word of God. We know that it's right for God to judge the pagan sinner who does not have God's word, but only has a God consciousness. But how much more right is it for God to judge those who do have his word and yet willfully ignore it? How much more right is it for God to do that? You have the written word of God and yet you ignore it. You sin in similar ways, Paul's implying. You hold others accountable to the truth, but it's a one-way standard. It only looks out. It never puts itself in the light, willfully ignores. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says this, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly. He will not be unpunished. Proverbs 11, verse 21. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. We say, hear, hear. The descendants of the righteous will be delivered. I find it interesting in Proverbs eleven twenty-one that Solomon in that proverb, does not say the descendants of the self-righteous will be delivered. It doesn't say that. It is the descendants of the righteous, and more clearly in the original language, the descendants of the righteous one, who is Jesus Christ alone. In other words, it is only those who are in Christ that will and can be delivered from the wrath to come. This is Paul's point in verse 3. It's his point really in verses 1 to 3. No one can rest in their own righteousness. No one can go around claiming that I am right with God because I go to church, because I read my Bible, because I don't do this or I don't do that, because I actually have the Bible. No one can rest on their own righteousness before the divine judge. It will not be an acceptable excuse. You are without excuse. These truths really ought to cause us to ponder our own soul. That cause us to ask the question, so what does a heart of self-righteousness look like? What does a heart of self-righteousness actually look like? I want to take us one more place in Scripture. Go back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. It's really a simple picture. Luke chapter 18, <clears throat> Jesus, in that time of his ministry where he's speaking in parables. And in verse 9, he begins with this parable. To certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They viewed others with contempt, it says. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, not a swindler, not unjust, not an adulterer, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You could put whatever you want in there. The tax gatherer standing in some distance away 
was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. A stark comparison between the self-righteous and the one who sees themselves rightly before God. Not as a sinner, but as the sinner. The self-righteous man is without excuse before God. He's without excuse just as much as the non-religious who does not want to acknowledge God, who wants to push God away and say, I need no God at all. Neither one has a greater justification before God for their own innocence. Both are guilty before God. And the reason they are guilty and the reason the self-righteous is guilty is because of flagrant hypocrisy. Clearly seen through what they do. There's a second reason. I told you I'd give you four. At least we'd start four. There is a second reason, and I'll just tell you what it is. We'll get to it next time. The second reason that God will judge those who are self-righteous is because of unrepentance. Unrepentance. Did you notice when I was reading verses 4 and 5? Really, four through eight. Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's repentance. Needed repentance. I was reading some time ago about the ancient Indians that once lived in the land of Russia, what we know as Russia today. There was a lot of tribes there, apparently. And the one that controlled the best hunting grounds had great strength and a a very wise chief over them. In fact, the chief was there not only because of his strength but also because of his impartiality as a judge within his tribe. One day there came a turn of events within the tribe in which a number of thefts had taken place. When they caught the person or when the person was to be caught they were going to give them 40 lashes from a whip which is how they would punish those within the tribe. Everyone knew that it was near impossible for anyone possibly to survive that kind of beating. And in time, the chief found out. The thief was caught, and everybody was amazed and shocked at who it was. It was his mother who was the thief. She'd been stealing from others. Of course, everyone wondered if he would pronounce the judgment upon his own mother, knowing full well the judgment would probably kill her. Being a wise chief, he did pronounce the sentence upon her. And as the first blow came down upon his mother, he surrounded her with his own body took the penalty himself. Of course, in a much greater way, that is exactly what Christ has done for all who believe upon him. He took our punishment. He took the wrath of his Father so that we would be saved from the wrath to come. The 
question this morning for all of us is whose righteousness are you relying on? Your own? Your own? If you're relying on your own, you are without excuse. You need Jesus Christ. You need repentance. You need the gift of God that you might be saved. I trust that is where your heart is this morning. If you don't know Christ, you need to plead with him, beg for mercy like the publican did. Run to him and cry for mercy. Save me, the sinner. Nothing else will do it. Let's pray today. Father, I trust that this time together has been profitable for your glory, for the goodness of your name, for the highlighting of the Savior Jesus Christ, for the illuminating reality of sin which separates us from you. Lord, you're the only answer. You're the only one who can take the wrath and satisfy holy judgment of your Father. Each one here stood condemned before you. Didn't matter what we said, didn't matter what we had done in the past, didn't matter how good we thought we are. Without Christ, we are nothing and worthy of nothing but justice. A justice that none of us really wanted. Lord, have each one of us run to you for refuge. Draw us to yourself. For each of us who have been saved by your grace, help us to thank you, to be thankful not just in words, but in our lives. As we trust you, as we rest in you, as we know that the wrath of you was taken upon Christ, that is not a license to go and do whatever we want as if we have our fire insurance taken care of simply now a freedom to actually do what you have called us to be and do. That you might be glorified in us, Lord, by your power, through your spirit. Help us to be like that. Thank you for these words this morning. Glorify and honor your great name above all things because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.